TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Smokescreen, debunking wildfire myths to save our forests and our climate. Chad Hansen. After the 2018 fire in California that burned down most of the town of Paradise, a map of the forest between Paradise and the ignition point of the fire made the rounds. That area had been heavily logged and thinned, all in the name of fire suppression. However, the fire moved more rapidly through the logged area and reached the town of 27,000 in less than two hours. 14,000 homes were destroyed and 85 people lost their lives. Were the people of Paradise left with a false sense of safety? Chad Hansen is the director of the John Muir Project of Earth Island Institute. He is part of a growing movement of scientists and researchers who are calling into question many of the practices and policies of logging, not just so-called fire suppression. Hansen had a Zoom meeting in September 2021 with the Dogwood Alliance. That's a forest protection nonprofit based in Asheville, North Carolina, and prior guest on TUC Radio. Here's Rita Frost of the Dogwood Alliance, welcoming Chad Hansen. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We're so pleased to have you with us today. My name is Rita. Dogwood Alliance works with John Muir Project on a number of issues relating to valuing standing forests. So I'm really thrilled to introduce to y'all Chad Hansen. He is a research ecologist and he's also the director of John Muir Project. And Chad has spent decades gathering and analyzing evidence of what forests do and what fires do to them. He is here with us to talk about his findings from his newly released book, Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. These findings include the complex relationship between forests and climate, what makes fires burn hottest most frequently and why, successful ways for communities to protect against wildfire damage. His conclusions and findings are remarkably different from what you might hear from the media, elected officials, or even the US Forest Service. Chad co-founded the John Muir Project in 1996. He first became involved with National Forest Protection after hiking the 2,700 mile length of the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada with his older brother in 1989. During this hike, he witnessed firsthand the devastation caused by rampant commercial logging on our national forests in California, Oregon, and Washington. Even for those living outside of the Rockies, Wildfire is everybody's problem, especially as it relates to climate change. Industrial logging in the United States emits 10 times more carbon than fire and tree mortality from native beetles combined. So let's sit back and hear the truth about forest and wildfire and get a bigger picture of where the real problem is. Chad, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Rita. Appreciate that. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, well, I'm going to focus on some of the key themes in my book, Smokescreen. And this is something, of course, that's a major issue in the Western United States, but is not just a Western issue, which is protecting homes and communities from wildfire. 
We saw the tragic consequences of that in 2018 in Northern California with the campfire uh, burned uh, in the first six hours through several thousand acres that had been heavily logged in the previous decade, post-fire logging and commercial thinning. And it was all done ostensibly as fuel reduction, quite a ways from homes uh, in, in the town of Paradise. And the community was told that this, this fuel reduction, uh, which was really just a, a commercial logging, that that would somehow stop a fire. Uh, the fire would, uh, would burn so lightly that uh, suppression crews could easily put it out, and they didn't need to worry. Um, so people didn't do their defensible space. They didn't do their home hardening. They thought it was a wildlands issue, not a community and a home issue. And the fire burned the most rapidly and most intensely through those logged areas and reached the town of Paradise much, much quicker than it otherwise would have because of all that logging, that so-called fuel reduction. This was overwhelmingly preventable. This did not need to happen. And if we had focused our resources and attention on the community itself, as opposed to logging industry, self-serving justifications, um, it could have been prevented. We saw the same thing earlier this summer in uh, two, of the, two of the largest fires in California this year, the Caldor Fire in the central Sierra Nevada, uh, near Lake Tahoe on the eastern side there. All those light orange and dark orange areas, that's previous logging. That's mostly commercial thinning. The fire just swept right through those areas, usually more rapidly than unlogged forests. And in fact, uh, that town of Grizzly Flats on the western side there that you can see, um, there was uh, several thousand uh, acres of logging, uh, commercial thinning on national forest lands that we opposed. We asked them not to do it. Uh, they did it anyway. The fire swept through that very rapidly and burned down the town of Grizzly Flats. Now there's very little of it left. Same thing in the Dixie Fire, almost a million acre fire this year, big fire. Not unprecedented. You know, we had big fires in the 1800s, but you don't have them this big very often. But uh, the thing is, again, look at those orange areas, um, light orange and, and, and dark orange. That's all previous logging, mostly commercial thinning. And the fire just swept right through those areas. Usually those are the fastest rates of spread going through those thinned areas, contrary to what the logging industry and the Forest Service are telling people. And the fire burned through thousands of areas that had been thinned on the ridge uh, outside of town, quite a ways from town. Uh, supposedly that was going to stop the fire and save the town. Well, that's where the fire burned the most rapidly, most intensely, went right through those thinned areas and burned down the town of Greenville. Now Greenville is basically gone. Again, this is entirely or almost entirely preventable. You know, we can't get to 100%. 100% is not attainable, really, but we can get pretty, pretty damn close. You know, we're seeing numerous examples where, where the home hardening is done and the defensible space, we're seeing 99% home survival or greater and people and their animals fully evacuated. If we focus there, we can actually do this. So I wanted to actually talk about that first because, you know, it just for me, this is where the focus needs to be. We need to keep the carbon in the ground and we need to keep the carbon in our forests. We don't need to be managing our forests to protect communities. From a climate standpoint, we know that we have to get away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. But what a lot of people don't realize is that's not enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We also have to draw down atmospheric carbon. The problem is, once we put all that excess carbon up there through our human activities, it stays up there for a very, very long time, many, many decades. And so we have to reduce uh, atmospheric carbon levels because they're dangerously high right now, and they're still going up. The only way to do that effectively, quickly, and in an environmentally beneficial way is uh, nature-based climate solutions. 
Uh, and that just basically means protecting ecosystems uh, from, uh, from extraction so they can absorb more carbon. And especially we're talking about forests because that's where your biggest bang for your buck is. And forest protection can be up to half of the needed climate change mitigation uh, globally. And the U.S. has a huge role to play here because we're our, we are the biggest global culprit in terms of carbon emissions from logging. A lot of people don't realize that. So we need to change direction. We need to increase forest protection. We need to start shifting away from wood consumption uh, and start reducing our wood consumption and moving away from it, just in the same way as we're having the, the conversation about moving away from fossil fuel consumption. A lot of harmful myths are getting in the way of the progress we need to make, though. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those harmful myths. First one I'm going to talk about is the overgrown forest myth. I'm sure you've all heard uh, various versions of this myth lots of times. It's not limited to the West. It also uh, is used in many places in the East increasingly. And the, the narrative goes something like this. Because of decades of fire suppression and or because of those pesky environmental laws and all those pesky environmentalists who enforce them, uh, our forests are overgrown. There's too many trees and too much biomass in our forests. And that's why they're burning too intensely, or that's why we're having tree mortality from competition or bark beetles. And therefore, we need to roll back environmental laws, increase subsidies for logging, and that will be the way forward to a healthy forest situation. That's what the logging industry is telling us. That's what they're telling policymakers. And so is the Forest Service. The reality is very, very different. The science is clear that in every forested region of the U.S., we actually have a lot less carbon storage now than we had historically. In other words, the carbon storage is considerably lower than the biological potential. And that's simply due to many decades of intensive carbon removal from logging. So the, the notion that we have too much biomass in our forests and therefore too much carbon is just absolutely uh, misinformation from the logging industry. But what this also means is that because we have uh, less carbon in our forests than they can store, that's huge climate change mitigation potential if we protect them and curb logging or protect vast areas from logging. Another key one that comes up is this idea that denser forests burn more intensely. That if you have a forest that has more trees, if it has more biomass, that it's necessarily gonna burn more intensely if a wildfire occurs. That notion is strongly contradicted by numerous scientific studies. This is a figure from just one of those studies. And just, it shows you on the x-axis there as biomass goes up, as forest density goes up, that uh, fire intensity uh, overall goes down. It, denser forests uh, tend to burn at lower intensities most of the time. And of course, there's a lot that I talk about in my book, Smokescreen. Another key aspect of this myth is if a forest hasn't burned in a very, very long time, if it is, as people put it, missed a few fire cycles uh, in terms of uh, you know, how frequently fires used to occur, that forests are going to burn much, much more intensely. And the, the Forest Service and the logging industry are using this to say, well, we just can't allow natural lightning strikes to burn because the forests will burn almost exclusively at high intensity if they haven't burned in 75 or 80 years or more than a century. And it's a really interesting issue because every single scientific study that's looked at this at any meaningful spatial scale with actual data from real fires has found this is not true. And so, uh, including my own research, I've published two studies on this. And I've got an another one on the way. Now, how is this possible? Because people think, well, it's so intuitively obvious. If you've got denser forests, if they haven't burned in a long time, 
they're going to have a lot of fuel accumulation. That's the term that the logging industry puts out there. The reality is very, very different. On the one hand, while a denser forest does have more trees and it has more biomass, theoretically, you might think that there's more to burn. On the other hand, there are countervailing factors that are really key and end up being even more important. And the key one is canopy cover. A dense forest has higher canopy cover. And because of that higher canopy cover, there's a lot more cooling shade. The forest floor stays more moist, more shaded in fire season. And the denser stands uh, of, of, the, of, of forests actually act like a windbreak against the winds that drive the flames. Whereas a more open forest, including forests where logging has occurred, including commercial thinning, uh, what happens is that reduces the forest canopy cover and it creates hotter and drier conditions on the ground and it creates windier conditions. And on top of that, logging spreads invasive combustible grasses uh, and also leaves behind a lot of combustible uh, slash debris. So one of the other key aspects of this is that the proponents of the overgrown forest myth would have us believe that fires are driven mostly or entirely by the structure, the density of the forest. And that's just not true at all. In fact, what we're seeing from numerous studies is that forest fires are primarily driven by weather and climate factors, which means that climate change is a key influence. It's not about how dense the forests are how many, or how many dead trees there are. It's really about whether you have a drought year and hot, dry, windy conditions. And you can't address that with chainsaws and bulldozers. But we conducted a study, my colleagues and I, in a study called Bradley et al. 2016. We did the largest scientific analysis uh, ever done on this, on this continent, uh, to my knowledge. Uh, we looked at 30, uh, 30 years of data and, uh, and over 1,500 fires across the entire western U.S., and we found, uh, again, that weather and climate are dominant, but we also found that logging is a key secondary factor, but not in the way most people think. What we found is that forests with the fewest environmental protections and the most logging actually have the highest levels of fire intensity. In other words, the fewer environmental protections and the more trees that are removed from the forest, the hotter and faster fires tend to burn, oftentimes toward towns. And that's backed up by lots of other research, a growing body of scientific research, which is finding that, yes, sure, a thinned area can sometimes burn at low intensity. Fire is highly variable uh, at local and, and, and small spatial scales. But depending on the scenario, it, more often than not, the fires are burning more intensely in these thinned areas. And of course, you're also putting a lot of carbon in the atmosphere every time thinning happens. According to Campbell et al. 2012, thinning emits three times more carbon than wildfire alone, just because of all the carbon, uh, most of that, uh, the carbon in the trees that are removed goes into the atmosphere almost immediately. So one other key aspect of this is this notion, we've probably all heard that dead trees are driving fire intensity, that the fires are burning more intensely because certain forests have a lot of dead trees. That's also mythology. Uh, this issue has been studied to death, and the vast majority of the science, including especially the biggest and most comprehensive studies, are finding that forests with more dead trees and more down logs uh, burn at equal or lower intensities than other forests. A lot of this comes down to water. People don't uh, think of, uh, oftentimes about down logs being uh, full of water, but they are. They actually soak up and retain huge amounts of soil moisture huge amounts of water. They can contain 25 times more water than the soil itself. 
And um, they, they function more like giant sponges than they do like fuel. And they retain a lot of that water, even in the middle of a big drought year, even in the middle of fire season. So the other one I'll just mention uh, for, for a moment here is what uh, I call the catastrophic wildfire myth. And I'm sure we've heard of this one uh, in various ways too many times, which is the basic narrative goes, well, fires are burning too hot and they're sterilizing the soil, they're destroying wildlife habitat, and, and nothing will grow afterwards. Um, and the only way to deal with a, a post-fire landscape is to uh, clear-cut it, what the Forest Service calls reducing fuel, and then plant trees, and they call that reforestation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what really happens after a fire and what, what post-fire logging and planting really means. First thing is that uh, these fires, even the biggest ones, are mostly low and moderate intensity. The Forest Service always uses red to show high-intensity fire areas, and it really draws the eye and jumps out at you. But those red areas here, this is the Rim Fire, 257,000 acres. Those red areas are only 19.9% of the total. The green and yellow is low and moderate, where most, most trees survive, and uh, that's 80% of the fire. This is the Wallow Fire of 2011, 565,000 acre fire, only 9% high intensity fire, over 90% low and moderate. This is common. Now, historically, before fire suppression, even in the frequent fire forest types like Ponderosa Pine and Mixed Conifer that before fire suppression burned you know, every 25 to 40 years, sometimes 15 to 20 years, but usually more like 20 or 30 even those forests had um, mostly low and moderate intensity fire, but a significant percentage of high intensity naturally, oftentimes 20 to 35% typically in any given fire. And this has been going on for not just thousands of years, but millions of years to the point where many, many wildlife species and plant species have evolved to depend not just on post-fire habitat, but specifically on high intensity fire. This is a map uh, showing uh, some large high-intensity fire patches in the 1800s, a map put together over the course of years by a bunch of U.S. Geological Survey researchers in the 1880s. And um, some of these patches, you can look at the scale there on the bottom, some of these are thousands of acres in size. Some of them are tens of thousands of acres in size. They didn't map small patches. They just mapped the big ones. But it just shows you that these big high-intensity fire patches, are, that some of them we're seeing right now, are not unprecedented. In fact, some of these patches here from the 1800s are significantly bigger than anything we've seen over the past 20 years. And this is just a quote from uh, that report. It just, uh, just describes what they were seeing. Dense stands of old forests that were lightly burned right next to areas uh, where the mature forest had burned at high intensity. And there were standing dead trees and regenerating trees and, and chaparral. All that complexity, that habitat uh, heterogeneity is really what gives the, these forests such high levels of biodiversity. And that's something we need to celebrate. This is what is created by high-intensity fire patches. Again, it's only 20 or 25, sometimes 30% of a given fire, sometimes less. But it's really significant in terms of its ecological contribution. This is a patch of what I call snag forest habitat, also known as complex early seral forest. And I took this picture 12 years after uh, the Star Fire burned in the central Sierra Nevada. And everything you see there is natural forest regeneration. All of these naturally, re naturally regenerating pines and fir and cedar and dogwoods and willows, shrubs, um, and then, of course, all the standing snags. This is incredibly rich, ecologically important habitat. Turns out, snag forest habitat 
uh, is comparable to old growth forests in terms of native biodiversity and wildlife abundance. These areas are ecological treasures. And a lot of that has to do with the dead trees because dead trees are really important for a lot of native insects that need dead trees to uh, reproduce. And there are a lot of native woodpecker species that depend on the larvae of those insects, those uh, native beetles, for their food. And so they find the, the larvae underneath the bark of fire-killed trees, and they eat thousands every year. Dead trees are also softer than live trees, and that allows the woodpeckers to excavate multiple nest cavities every year, which they do, usually three or four. And the female picks the one she likes the best every year, and, and that's, uh, that's the one where they, they raise their young. And the ones they don't choose are available to the dozens and dozens of other uh, small mammal and bird species that need cavities to raise their young, but cannot create their own uh, because they're not woodpeckers like bluebirds and nuthatches, flying squirrels and chipmunks and many, many other, other species. And so you have this rich interconnected uh, ecosystem. And then of course you have a lot of wood warblers and, and you know, other shrub nesting birds in the understory that thrive in all that natural uh, lush post-fire regeneration. And so as a consequence, bird abundance, total bird abundance usually goes up with increasing fire intensity. Now, of course, you don't want everything to burn at high intensity. You want the low and moderate because a lot of species like that too. You want that mix. So everything is getting what it needs. And interestingly, you know, uh, we hear a lot about spotted owls um, and, and the importance of old forests for them. Well, that's true. But it turns out that they forage and hunt. Um, they go out of their way to forage in the snag forest because that's where their small mammal prey base is the best. But if post-fire logging occurs, it takes away their key hunting grounds and their populations plummet in areas where post-fire logging um, has happened. Now, in the U.S., in forested, uh, in, in, in forested regions, we actually have significantly less wildfire now than we had historically. And that may be surprising to a lot of people. Um, it's, you know, the, the gap between historical and current is different in different regions. But it's pretty big in most areas. And um, it is going upwards. The annual acres burned, on average, has been increasing since the 1970s. But the, the reality is, ecologically, we still are below historical pre-fire suppression levels. And so don't, we don't need to worry that fire is destroying our forests um, at the levels of fire that's burning right now. Now, I'll just mention also from a carbon flux standpoint, even in high intensity fire patches, only about 3% or less of the tree carbon is actually consumed. And that's really important to understand because even if trees are killed, very, very little carbon is consumed. Just the outer surface of the bark, uh, some leaves or needles and, uh, and some of the smallest twigs and maybe some seedlings and some really small saplings. Now, for that reason, the current models are vastly overstating carbon emissions from wildfires every single year because they're assuming that large percentages of carbon in trees is actually consumed in fires, which is not true. And we know this from field research. And none of the current models are accounting for post-fire regrowth and all the carbon sequestration associated with that. And that post-fire regrowth is incredibly significant. This is a picture of me on the right and uh, uh, famous climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen on the left. He and I have teamed up with others uh, to fight a large post-fire logging project uh, on a national forest in the Sierra Nevada, where the Forest Service is telling the public that the, the forest is not regenerating after the fire, that it's incapable of, re of regenerating in these large high-intensity fire patches. 
And this is what these areas actually look like. We're in the middle of a proposed logging unit where the Forest Service says there's no regeneration. And of course, the natural forest regrowth is seven, eight feet tall. This is what it looks like right next door in the same high intensity fire patch, but where post-fire logging occurred more than four years earlier and where the area was planted right after post-fire logging. Because of the, the soil damage from the logging equipment and all the nutrient removal when the trees were removed, uh, so much damage was done that whatever they planted mostly died. And this is a common, common problem. Now, interestingly, giant sequoias also regenerate wonderfully after fire. And what you can see there in the middle of this picture are a bunch of giant sequoia seedlings. These are mostly three to five feet tall. Uh, this is four years post-fire in a larger high-intensity fire patch that occurred uh, four years ago in the Sierra Nevada. And so contrary to what we're hearing in the media right now, uh, giant sequoias actually thrive the best in moderate and high-intensity fire areas. And in fact, that's why they've been slowly dying off for 130 years is because we've been successfully excluding mixed-intensity fires from these groves until the last five or six years. Because of all that natural forest regrowth, because the forests regenerate so wonderfully after fire, forests become a carbon sink again uh, in a very short period of time after a wildfire occurs because of all that nutrient cycling and natural forest regeneration. And what that means is you've got a lot of carbon sequestration and that accelerates with every year post-fire. Now our forests are carbon sinks still at the regional scale, but they could be much bigger carbon sinks and absorb a lot more carbon from the atmosphere if we protected them from logging, including getting the Forest Service out of the commercial logging business, but also acquiring a lot more private forest lands into protected public ownership from willing sellers and providing financial incentives to private landowners to not log their lands. So forest fires are not the carbon bomb. Logging is the real carbon bomb. And that's especially true when you're talking about logging for biomass uh, energy or wood pellets where the, the wood is incinerated for energy production. Basically, that emits even more carbon, even more CO2 than coal for equal energy produced. It is a climate change nightmare. And we really need to push back against logging for biomass and wood pellets. We call this clear cuts for kilowatts. Uh, but it's not just post-fire logging. It's also commercial thinning uh, that's doing this. Because when a tree is removed from the forest, the branches and the tops are not usable for lumber. That, that gets incinerated in biomass facilities. And then when the log gets hauled to the timber mill, um, a, a lot of that carbon uh, ends up as mill residue. And that gets incinerated at the lumber mills for energy production. So a lot of people don't realize logging these days is mostly about dirty fuel. Very little uh, of the wood in a tree that's removed ends up in a lumber product somewhere. In fact, logging in U.S. forests emits 10 times more carbon than fire and native beetles combined. This is a serious, serious issue, and uh, we really need to curb those emissions and also protect our forests so they can absorb more CO2 from the atmosphere. So what does it all mean? It basically means we need to beware uh, of legislation that's claiming to promote the health of our forests or reduce fuels or curb wildfires. Terms like forest health, fuel reduction, restoration, thinning, these are all euphemisms for logging. And uh, we need to support legislation and, and promote legislation that protects our forests, including public lands, but also ending logging subsidies and doing a lot more to protect private forest lands in both the West and the East. That was Chad Hansen, research ecologist with the John Muir Project and author of the book 
Smokescreen, Debunking Wildfire Myths to Save Our Forests and Our Climate. You heard excerpts of his talk to the Dogwood Alliance in Asheville, North Carolina. The one-hour talk and conversation is posted on YouTube as Debunking Wildfire Myths with Dr. Chad Hansen of JMP in association with the Dogwood Alliance. The date is September 23rd, 2021. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.